Eric, what's up, man? Yeah, it's uh, what's going on, man? Doing all right? Doing good. I am so pumped up for this conversation we're about to have because I've been, well, one, we've been trying to coordinate it forever. Man, it feels like it's been months. That's know, right. right. And we live like right down the street from each other, so it's almost inexcusable. Right. right. But so most people have no idea who you are, and that's okay. They will know at the end of this. But Eric is one of the most fun people to talk to, in my opinion, just because. You're just like so, so chock full of like just random wisdom, and it's not random because it's life experience. But I, I just yeah. lo- I feel like we have really good conversations. So yeah. Eric Merriweather, yeah. give the world a, a, a ten thousand foot view of Eric one hundred and one. Ten thousand foot view, Eric one hundred and one. So um, originally from Memphis, Tennessee, and born and raised. Um, lived there until the age of seventeen, and uh, moved up to to Middle Tennessee, but to of course rewind just. Give you a little snapshot of, of the childhood. I'm a um, uh, sibling. Two si- well, I have two siblings. Um, younger sister who actually lives up here in uh, Murfreesboro now. Recently moved to Shelbyville, so out in the sticks. About wow, driving <laughs> metropolis. About four, yeah, yeah. Uh, brother-in-law was from Alabama, so he wanted land, and you know he grew up with chickens and you know cattle and, and whatnot. So he wanted uh, wanted okay. to be out with some acreage. So they moved out to Shelbyville. Um, but me and my sister grew up. Uh, Mom and dad divorced early on when I was about five or six years old. Um, I have a half brother as well, and that's a brother, older brother actually, um, and we share, of course, the father. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. We um, grew up with uh, a lot of traveling between my mom's brothers and sisters. My mom has like nine brothers and sisters, and so oh, wow. yeah, we were. Um, you know, with with family on the weekends and sometimes during the week. Uh, just remember growing up, mom working. I don't even think you know a lot of this. Um, mom working two and three jobs at a time, um, you know, just making ends meet, making sure that we were taken care of. I wouldn't necessarily say that we grew up, you know, impoverished at all, but uh, we never, never went without, you know, mm-hmm. I never went without moms, make sure that we always had. And she ended up marrying my stepfather uh, when I was about 11 or so. And so to make a long story short with that, um, speaking about we were speaking about manhood a little earlier, but my stepfather is the one who actually taught me how to be a man, you know, how to yeah. fix cars, cutting grass, et cetera. Um, learned just about everything that I knew about being a man early on from him. Um, just thinking back, it was actually because of him that I was able to play football. So I played football in Little League, uh, mm-hmm. Pee Wee League, I think is what it was called back then, and uh, ran track. In junior high and high school, well, my moms didn't want me to play football, mm. and so uh, I remember my my stepdad saying, "Mama, let that boy play football." And <laughs> <laughs> just thinking back, it was because of him yeah. that uh, you know I, I played because I started young. I mean, started probably eleven, right when they were together dating. Um, you know, started playing football and uh, ended up getting into another fun fact. Uh, I. I don't do it as much, but I'm very artistic. And so that's what's been interesting with the um, with being in the financial realm. Right. So I've been, you know, part of uh, bands, done talent shows. I think, you know, uh, sing a little bit, uh, dance back in the day. But I got into a creative and performing uh, arts school for drawing, took a drawing for two years and then did digital art and design. For two years. And so I was on for a school in Memphis that had a low graduation rate, um, you know, wasn't the best. And my mom didn't want me to go to that school, you know, just 
being in the area growing up and knowing uh, where that would lead. Because at, at yeah. the time, I didn't really, you know, we don't have that kind of foresight at, at such a young age. But she had me audition to go to Overton, which was about 35 minutes from our home and neighborhood. Yeah. But I auditioned, ended up getting in, and that's pretty much where I spent uh, the, uh, the years of my, uh, my high school. Okay, that's really interesting because I didn't know a lot of that. So, yeah, yeah. so time out. Let's fast forward even more. So that's obviously yeah. your childhood, but now you're married, kids, all that good stuff, and been in the finance world forever, yeah, everything yeah. from banking to advising. Um, and you mentioned something really interesting. You said, you know, your stepdad was the one that taught you how to be a man. Mm-hmm. Um, elaborate a little bit more on that. I know you mentioned kind of like the fixing cars and the cutting the grass and, and stuff yeah. like that, but those – not that it's not shallow, but it's kind of like yeah. the surface level stuff. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah, let's yeah. let's dig a little deeper when you when you say, what was your stepdad's name? Curtis. Curtis, Curtis Dean was his name. So, you know, what's a lesson when you think back where maybe, and I know you've got daughters, but it's still, as a father, as a parent, it still translates. You ever catch yourself with your, with your girls being like, damn, that was something Curtis taught me. <laughs> or that's something he instilled in me. Yeah. And I, I think... Um, I just remember times, especially like to take a little deeper with like the working on the cars, right? And, and cutting the grass. It was times where, you know, you, you want to give up, right? You, mm-hmm. you want to quit. You're tired. And just having that push, right, to, to not give up, um, you know, not not quit uh, when things get hard, get tough. Um, and I'll say even with, with my girls, it's, it's interesting. The first thing I thought about was a slightly different perspective um, and I, I always say God knows what he's doing, right? He gives you what you need. It's not always what we, we want per se, but uh, I don't feel bad saying that I talk to a lot of guys and especially um, that are parents and they, they feel this way sometimes. So I was I was disappointed initially, mm-hmm. right? Initially. And I think, you know, every man, you know, generally wants to have a son. Yes. 100 percent. Yeah. And so I, that's actually changed me now. So I have two daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, Ariana is my oldest. She's uh, eight, about to be nine. And Araya is my youngest. She's six. I love my girls to, to death. Wouldn't trade them for the world now. But when my wife got pregnant and we were sitting in the doctor's office and they told us what the gender of the baby was, my head just hung. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that was very funny. But uh, I've always struggled with emotion. Yeah. Right. So part of that, as you mentioned, shallow, but my stepdad was also one that, you know, I never saw, I never saw cry. Right. You don't, you don't cry. Men yeah. don't cry. Men yeah. are tough. And then playing sports, football. And so from one aspect and standpoint, then growing up in Memphis, which you're, you know, you grew yeah, up there yeah. as well and you know how the, the culture and everything is there. You can't, you can't be soft. Right. No, hell no. You, you, there's no way you'll, you'll you, survive. If you're you know? soft, they will light you up at, yeah. at the cafeteria table during <laughs> lunch and you will never, ever show your yeah, show face in public ever. Ever. Yeah. It'll make you tough with nothing else. <laughs> yeah, man. So, uh, in addition to, and I think that was part of it because my stepdad, he, uh, he grew up in Memphis as well. And yeah. so, you know, he knew, knew the streets, knew what was out there. And so he, was intentional with making sure that I was tough and thus part of the reason even, you know, make sure I was in football, et cetera. But um, I've struggled with emotion and expressing emotion. And so my wife, um, Tempest, is actually a mental health therapist. And so she's helped me a lot. People joke about being in home, you know, having an in-home yeah. therapist. But I've realized over the years that in a sense I, I do. And she's mm-hmm. helped me to see because the only emotion that I've typically had 
Uh, and I don't, again, feel bad even expressing this. A lot of people don't know that I've had an anger problem. Anger, mm-hmm. I'm just more implosive. See, I'm the type, I'm cool, calm, collected. I don't mess with anybody, but it's like if my buttons get pushed, you know, in the right places, um, I have, I've typically blown. And so a part of that, what she saw, of course, is an issue, just the anger. That's the only emotion that I knew how to express, right, based on uh, past upbringing, et cetera. Yeah. And so all that being said, you know, I was this hard, unemotional type guy. And then I have a daughter mm. and having daughters. And so even lessons with it's it's different for me um, because I have to I find myself having to constantly be mindful of the emotions that I'm expressing and how I'm coming across to my daughters. And that's been amazing. And I've, I've always said, um, and my wife will attest, having children like made us both better. It changed both of us for the better, Yeah. Um, which, which is unique because you talk to a lot of people and, um, or some people and having kids puts a extra stress and strain on the relationship. But our stress and strain was actually before we had kids. Hmm. Um, and it's very difficult. And that's why I have so much respect for my mom as well. You know, just during that time where she was raising, um, you know, me and my sister working two, three jobs. And what I, another, <laughs> another thing I didn't go too much in depth on is that before my stepfather passed, he actually became very ill. So he had diabetes. Mm-hmm. He uh, got pneumonia. It's mm. um, mid 40s. I think he was like 46. And he developed heart disease. And so uh, a lot of things in the, you know, the the industry that we, we hear about in terms of finance, um, he did end up going on disability. He did have to have people come into the home to care for him. He did have to go into, you know, assisted living facilities, et cetera. And so we in his forties, yeah. Wow, yeah. Jeez. And so we was barely over fifty when he passed. And so on top of all that, you know, moms is is having to take care of and make sure. And and during this point period of time, because I graduated high school in '01, yeah. And so I moved up here to MTSU, moved to Murfreesboro to attend MTSU in 2001. And during this time, you know, my mom and sister are dealing with the sickness, you know, and all that comes along with that with my my stepdad. So you're the only son. Uh, I'm the only son by my mother. Yeah. Okay. You, you said you have got the half, half brother. brother. Yeah. yeah. Older half brother. But he wouldn't have been pops. in the picture there nah. with that family unit. Uh-uh. So I'm really, really curious about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So your stepdad is sick. Mm-hmm. He's the male figure in your life. He's about to pass. Whether you like it or not, you become the patriarch of the family. Mm-hmm. Talk about the pressure you feel and the struggle that's going through, especially at that time. I mean, I don't know how old you were, but you were in your 20s. That was what? I'm 35. <laughs> I do a little birth math. What was about 20? Man, 2007. How long ago? Time flies, man. So 12 about years 12 ago. Years. Yeah, so you're 23. 23? Yeah. Man. So you're at 23, you're having to take on a role in the family that you're, you're basically trying to fill the void of your stepdad at that point. Whether you like it or not, it's just the reality of it. Mm-hmm. What's going on at that time? Yeah, so this is a, a very interesting thing um, just about me. And again, going back to the emotional thing. And so um, I always felt like my entire life, for a large part of my life, um, <laughs> and this is, I feel like I'm in a, in a counseling session. These are really good questions. So from what I remember, I, when I first started working, started working at uh, 15. Mm-hmm. 
right for Kroger Company and bag, bag and groceries. Bag and groceries. That's the most Memphis thing I've ever man. Done. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and I started bagging groceries because my older cousin bagged groceries. Right? It's, it's 108 <laughs> degrees outside. It feels like 150. It's 110 percent humidity. And at, least one, at least 150. At yes. least 150. Yes. Uh, so you either work, you know, bag groceries somewhere Kroger more than likely. Or worked at FedEx, like it's everybody in Memphis at some point in time has done that. But uh, started working there as a quote unquote courtesy clerk. Mm. Sound sounded better, I guess. Very yeah, sexy, back, yeah, very sexy courtesy clerk. Um, but the manager that hired me, I remember when he ended up leaving the store. Um, and before that, it was my my dad, you know, yeah. leaving. And I remember, you know, I'll never forget. He said, "This will be the last time that you all see me." I, I'll never forget that. He's, wait, I don't think this, I've ever said that on air before, but uh, he said so. He's already sick. No, so this is my dad, my biological. Oh, father. your biological. Father. Yeah, okay, so sorry, my sorry. biological father. When I was very young, um, probably somewhere around the age of nine, ten, said this would be our last time seeing me, and I just remember that statement, and I still remember that to this day and how I felt. And he wouldn't. I don't even remember what the explanation or the answer was. Hmm. Um, but it wasn't like a, a real like valid type answer. You know what I'm saying? And, it, and so uh, I found out later just through becoming older and more mature, it was because my mom had gotten with Curtis and they were about to get uh, married. Mm. And my dad and Curtis were polar opposite in terms of their demeanors. Mm. Right. And so <laughs> I don't know exactly what was said offline or when I wasn't in the presence, but I could imagine, um, you know, what was just stepping off like, yeah. all right, I'm, I'm out of the picture. And so, but that didn't matter to me. I didn't know any of that. And so in terms of, and I think that's where it started with the, the lack of emotion. I think that's where it started. Was that that moment? Because I was crushed. I remember laying in bed it, that night, just crying my, bawling my eyes out. Because uh, you're probably thinking, why does Daddy not want me? Yeah, it was it was a lot of a lot of things going through my head at that point. Um, but I think that's where it started. So to answer the the question in terms of the the pressure and, and losing, and because so then it was Kroger and my manager left, and then I had uh, you know just situations. It, it feels like it's always been. Things that occur in life and then people pass, you know, I had, of course, grandparent, my grandmother passed. Uh, it's been a couple of years. Uh, it was a pastor. I was very close to some things happened there and, and that relationship was severed. And so what happened from early on through the stages of life and losing certain people, I became calloused. Mm. And yeah. so I left home 2001 at the age of 17. So I had a car, you know, for when I started working, saved up, got a car. So 17 MTSU freshman, I had a car, was just about working full time. And so without even realizing it at the time, I was already becoming uh, a man, the best, you know, that I, I knew how. And of course I knew work. So that's what I saw from my mom and stepdad was the work ethic. So I've always believed in working hard and um, just always of course, tried to be there for my, my sister, younger sister, my mom, and then people that are close to me. You know, I'll do anything for those I, I love. If I'm down with you, I'm, I'm down with you. Yeah. Um, 
And so I think early on, it was a lot of pressure. And I've just now the last few years probably um, released myself uh, and, and realized that um, I don't have to put as much pressure on myself as I have because I truly feel like I missed out on about five, about four or five years of my life hmm. in my early 20s because I was always chasing success, always chasing money, right? Always feeling that I have to be responsible. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to get to the next level. I hit one goal and it's on to the next one. I very rarely enjoyed the fruits of my labor, yeah. so to speak. Right? Do you think that was because it gave you purpose? Hmm. Um, I think part of it was uh, was purpose, and I was very driven by just having a yeah. I, I think having a certain having a certain life, you know, and being able to create. And, and a lot of what I do, because I am a, of course a believer, and if you don't know exactly what steps to take, you don't have mentors there at the the point in time where you feel like you need them and you feel alone, right? I always say we have a life manual and that's the word of God, the Bible. You know, people can say what they want, feel how they feel. But at the end of the day, there are lessons, principles and things that if you apply them to your life, you get the desired result. And so for me, how to be a father, what it means to be um, a man, you know, searching what it means to be in your purpose. I found that and found those things through the word. And, and what I was going back to is, for instance, um, part of that was I always said when I get married, I won't say always, probably in my uh, early 20s, when I hit 20, 21, just getting in college and, and learning about just different professions, et cetera, I, I say. Um, and then I read in the Bible, too, that men generally worked. Right. And they they built and prepared the home. Right. And, and they would bring their wives into that. And the wives would not have to work. They take care of the home and the man would, would work and provide. And so I read about that. And it's like when I first read that, I said, I don't know who she is. I don't know what the situation would look like. But I would always want when I get married for my wife to have the choice not to have to work. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that my kids are taken care of. And so some of that drive and that push was toward that. And so by the grace of God, you know, I was able to get a um, full-time job right out of college. And a few years into marriage, you know, had uh, kids. And my wife stayed home with our first kid for almost four years. And yeah. then we had a second one within that time, you know. So a lot of the things I was pressing toward was for that. But I think some of it maybe was a little bit unhealthy because I never rested. I very rarely, you know, slept. When you're younger, you can do do those things. And I think the older you get, you have to be more mindful of, uh, of health as well. Yeah, it's I've had this conversation with folks before on, yeah. on the podcast about, you know, especially with like the mental health aspect of yeah. society. Like it's, it's not as taboo for us to talk about depression or anxiety or whatever it may be. Granted, we can also make the argument that some people use it as a crutch, Uh but then there's also like legitimate issues in society that need to be faced. Yeah. You know, with our grandpas and great grandparents, man, what the hell's depression? Go out there, go into the field and work, (laughs) go out into the barn and haul some hay, you know, go. Yeah. They, they didn't 
have the option of not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I always use this, like my, my grandfather, great grandfather, they were all farmers. Yeah. Like they didn't go buy food. They sold the food at the market mm-hmm. that they, you know, that right. they, that yeah. they planted and harvested, et cetera. Yeah. So they didn't have the opportunity of, yeah. oh, let me take a vacation. It's like, no, like every day missed is an op- Like it might rain next week and we can't work. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, yeah. So, but Again, because they didn't have that option, it's almost as if in society today, because we do have the option when we choose not to, to take care of ourselves, it's almost worse. Yeah. If that makes sense. I don't know. Like I'm ranting a little bit, but yeah. it, it's, it's, it's like we're almost a glutton for punishment, whereas they weren't punishing or making a choice. They had no choice. Yeah, they had no choice. They had to, they had to do this. Yeah. I think it's interesting because you're kind of talking about the keeping up with the Joneses effect we have in society of – you know, you said money was a big motivator. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you know, you, you wanting your wife to stay home with your kids, I would say is a pretty normal yeah. thing somebody would want. Ah, let, so with that, that's not so growing up. I didn't see that. Oh, okay. That's good. Yeah, that's, that's Inner good. city Memphis. So, yeah. You don't get to see that. Yeah. So, so that was an achievement to you. It was an achievement. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas to somebody yeah. who grew up in Collierville or Brentwood. That's an expectation. Yeah, exactly, man. And so that that was That's one a good of the point. that was that was amazing. Um, just even that perspective, because I didn't even think about it. It's like, wow, you said that, and it's like, well, that's something I didn't see. Yeah, and that's why. So it is good to talk to people from you know just different backgrounds, different demographics, different races, cultures, creed. Because when I came up to MTSU, it was total culture shock for me. Yeah, because you probably total went total culture shock. What part of Memphis did you live in? I grew up in the Haven. So okay, so White Haven. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so for folks who who don't know, little little demographic history of Memphis. Memphis, especially the inner city, is predominantly African American. Mm-hmm. I mean, even oh, yeah. even the county Shelby County, if you include like the suburbs and White Flight and all that. Is yep. predominantly African American, and, and the place where that stems from is basically in during the Reconstruction era before Jim Crow. Um, obviously, West Tennessee was a very heavily plantation-like mm-hmm. area. It's hot, it's humid. You can grow a lot of slaves, freed slaves, yeah. but also a lot of uh, freed slaves from Mississippi uh-huh. moved up to Memphis. Yeah, um, My grandparents. Yeah, yeah. I mean that like. B.B. King, like that's a story. If if you if you listen to it, like yeah. a lot of freed slaves from Mississippi moved up to Memphis because there was opportunity in Memphis because it was the ninth largest city in the country, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it was on the Mississippi River, mm-hmm. and it just had jobs. Yeah. And then Jim Crow happened and sent everybody back another you know two hundred years. But with that, in the inner city, I mean, I went to Bruce Elementary, which is an inner city elementary school. Mm-hmm. There was mm-hmm. maybe three white kids in that school, maybe right. And I was one of them. Oh, yeah. And none of us were American. So, <laughs> so like, right. so when you say culture shock at MTSU, you're going from a homogenous environment in Whitehaven to a mix of everybody. Yeah. And I mean, I remember when I was, uh, when I first got up to MTSU, there were classes where I was the only African-American, the only black person in class. Yeah. And that was the first time I'd ever experienced that. And that was very interesting. It was just an interesting feeling. Uh, but but it was extremely uncomfortable. And, and we always hear that, you know, in order to to grow, like you have to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And, you know, the, the more more uncomfortable you are and you can reside in that space, you you grow more uh, in a lot of different aspects. Right. So we were to become comfortable being uncomfortable. And fortunately, without even realizing it, that's what occurred 
you know, during the first, you know, four or five years I was up here, literally transformed who I was um, and transform, you know, what my life would be and and will continue to evolve to be. Have you found it? And I'm asking because I found this difficult and we're not trying to pick on Memphis here. It's just where we're both from. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Have you found it hard going back and interacting with some of the people who never took themselves out of an environment of comfort, whatever that comfort may be? I'll say, um, yeah. I mean, I, I love my dogs. I love, you know, my fam, everybody that's, that's back in Memphis. Uh, but what I, what I see is it's a, it's a certain mentality, you know, I've got, um, so one of the things that, that my wife has even opened my eyes to, and just as I evolve, I become more interested in, uh, and not from a vain standpoint, but traveling, right? So mm-hmm. traveling and wanting to see the world. Yep. And one of the um, most enlightening moments and trips that I, I've had is, I'll never forget, me and my wife went to uh, uh, Negril, Jamaica, mm-hmm. for our honeymoon. We stayed on the nice, you know, Sandals Resort, mm-hmm. but like good Americans, right? Like good Americans. Yeah. But something interesting happened. We ha- we took a tour, and we got to see what people lived like off of the resort, mm-hmm. and it was unbelievable. I mean, the the poverty that we've seen here, you know, whether it's just projects or whatever, like it's nothing compared to what they're living, mm-hmm. you know, day to day there. And so that was really, um, that was really impactful and changed, um, you know, changed my mind mindset uh, about life and wanting to see more and experience more. But I say all that to say, when you get a taste of those things, it makes you want to explore and learn more, mm-hmm. right? Because it's, it, it's, a, it's a huge world out there. But the mindset so often, and it's not just Memphis, you know, anybody that grew up in a uh, area that was generally rural where like I, we didn't travel right, right outside of going to family reunions when I was young. Like yeah. we never took quote unquote vacations. Yeah. And so if you if you constantly reside in that space and in that state and one thing my wife always talks about, she's from Chattanooga and they weren't as communal. Right. Mm-hmm. Her family wasn't as communal growing up, but like. Friends in the neighborhood, family. I mean, it was so communal and it was it was fun. It, it's moments that uh, in certain moments, memories were created for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's almost a sense of I've got everything I need, like right here. I've got the relationships, people that are down for me, people I love. You know, I got a job, I'm getting a little paycheck. I got a little extra money on the weekends. Like I've got food. You know, we, we go party, we kick it. Like, what else do I need? Mm-hmm. This is this is a good life. Yeah. And so if you you never saw, you know, the, the former of what I mentioned, you don't know what's yeah. out there. You don't know what else is out there. And if it's crime or, or violence, like that's that's normal. I'll give you an example, man. So <laughs> I drove a two-door Mitsubishi Mirage when I first came up here. 17 inch chrome wheels. <laughs> Fake spinners on them, whatever. <laughs> no, before the before the Rams, I had the hubcaps. I had to spin a hubcaps. And another great song when I worked at Kroger, man, cats used to steal hubcaps. Wow, I don't believe that one ever. Man, I'd never forget. I got a clean pair of hubcaps, man. It was like when I first started working at Kroger, got up enough money to buy me some hubcaps. <laughs> I was pushing carts 
<laughs> and I looked over at my car. He's always parked on the right hand side. That was mm-hmm. the, the the employee parking. I looked up. Oh, my cows were gone. All four, or just a couple. All four. Mm. I'm like, that's ruthless. Ruthless, crazy. And so what we what we started doing is we would zip tie our hubcaps. <laughs> <laughs> like you had to zip tie your hubcaps. It's crazy. I, I I forgot about that. But what I was gonna say when I moved up here, so I had the seventeen, and, and so I of course got a little more money. Switch got the um got the actual yoga chrome tires, the, the actual chrome seventeen inch. You get the, the most it could fit. On. Did you get the Yokohama tires because you heard Yo Gotti rapping about them? That was part of it. Yeah, and that, you know <laughs> they were the thin, thin tires, and then I had the the tan. Had two tans in the trunk. Had the neon lights. All that. Damn, Kroger's paying well. Man, I, I I've always been a saver. I can tell you, always, always just uh, you probably bar- you probably negotiated those uh that neon and the and the tens as well. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah, you know it, man. But um, so what? Yeah, where I was going with all that? So moved up here, and we the thing that was popular back in the day because cats used to steal radios. Like you did not leave your radio. Yeah, you had to take the face off. Yeah. yeah. See, see that? Yeah. I moved up here, and people would be like. I mean, men, women, like, why are you taking the face off your radio? Why, why, why are you taking your face off? It's like, well, I'm taking my face off. So won't nobody steal it. <laughs> so nobody will steal it. Can I add something to that? <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. So, you know, I went to Tennessee in Knoxville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, again, I'm coming from Memphis. Mm-hmm. And I remember freshman year, uh, my, my, couple, my, uh, my dad sends me the new yeah. registration sticker. Okay. The for the next year in the mm-hmm. mail. Yeah, yeah. Now you know in Memphis because it's like the most expensive registration sticker in, in Tennessee. Like, <laughs> right. like in rural Tennessee, right. it's like twenty bucks, and you don't even have to do like an inspection. Right. Like in, in Memphis, you got to wait for like two hours at the damn inspection station. It's like two hundred dollars. Right. So right. people would steal the stickers uh-huh. off of cars and yep. put them on. Yep. Yep. So yep. what what we would do is uh-huh. we cut them up with a yep. box cutter, so you can't steal them. <laughs> yep. And yep. Dad sends me the sticker, and we. I'm putting it, I'm, I'm looking at my buddy and I'm like, oh crap, I got to get a box cutter. Let me go ask the front desk. Yeah. And I come back with a box cutter and he's like, why the hell do you need a box cutter? And I was like, because I'm, I'm going right. to I'm gonna cut up the sticker. When I, when I, I he's, cut up the sticker. Yeah, and he's from the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. So like I put it on my car and I'm cutting it up and he's like, why? So, so nobody steals it. So yeah, I know, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, man. When I first started driving, moms taught me that. Yeah, yeah. you get a razor blade, boss cutter, you cut your sticker. Yeah, so nobody was stealing it. It's crazy, man. But yeah, so that was the whole thing with the face. Like, yeah, take it my I used to take it everywhere. And it took me, <laughs> it took me about four years of being up here before I stopped doing it. It was crazy. Well, and and people would, you know, uh UTPD at orientation would say, and obviously, like we're making, like we're doing this in jest. Mm-hmm. I don't expect anybody who grows up in like a safe, normal environment right. to know the same things that like <laughs> is beaten to your head in a city that has massive crime. Yeah. But yeah. you know, not leaving stuff visible in your car yeah. in general, right under the seat, like in I, the trunk. I can't yeah. tell you how many of my friends freshman year got their car broken into. Not broken into. They just opened your damn door because yeah. it was unlocked. Yeah. So it was a donation. <laughs> Which they learned after that. Contributions to the community. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but all right. So you come up to NTSU, you got your car, you're taking your radio, you're taking it with you. But what did you learn from that? Just from the fact that like other people didn't know that. Like to you, that was normal. Mm-hmm. To you, that was expected. Yeah. Like to, to, to 
you know, even to me as a kid and as a, as a high school, like everybody took their radio out. Like that's what yeah, you did. That's, it. that's what everybody did. But people thought it was weird. weird. Why? What, what was it with you? Like what clicked? Yeah. So what clicked with me? Another thing was the, the quote unquote accent. Like, you know, people could in, immediately tell within, you know, 10, Five. 15 seconds that you're from Memphis. Yep. Like, wow. Like, I never realized I had an accent. It's because you say junt and main. Yeah, main, junt, all that. Yeah, you got to change it up here. Of course, it got to be more mindful because people don't understand the, the lingo and the, yeah. the slang um, or Memphis dialect, whatever you want to call it. And so what it showed me, though, is, wow, uh, to my point earlier, the rest of the world isn't this way. Like this, the, the entire world is not Memphis. And that's the way you feel mm-hmm. when you're there and when you're in it. And so it forces you to to adapt, mm-hmm. right, and, and stretch. That's where that, that growth comes in. But it showed me that, yeah, the rest of the world is, is different. You can't do things the way that you did things, um, you know, growing up. And in order to be who you are going to become, you can't continue to be who you are. Mm. Elaborate, you know, you know, elaborate on that. Like, what I mean – Staying stagnant is probably one of your greatest fears. Hmm. I mean, knowing you, what are you doing regularly to make yourself uncomfortable? Man, <laughs> um, profession for for one, just because. So when I came up here, I was the the young cat wearing the long chains, you know, down to my waist, uh, white tees, fitted cap, uh, you know, jeans. Reeboks, Icy Whites, Jays. Uh, I never forget. I, <laughs> I got pulled over, man, my, by my sophomore year and got an excessive noise ticket. Because mm, you were like, too tense. I'm like, well, you're right. I'm yeah. like, what is this? Like, excessive noise. Yeah. That that was another thing. Like, if you're in Memphis I, I, and you're sitting at a light, a police will get on the bullhorn and tell you to turn, I'll turn it down, turn your music down. But it's like, a ticket? Yeah. I, I didn't even know that existed. I was baffled. Yeah. I was flabbergasted. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that you could get a ticket for excessive noise. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm now, of course, you know, people will see where I am now, how I carry myself, how I speak, how I, how I dress. Um, but I'll say continually reading, uh, continually getting into circles with people that, um, I don't know much about mm-hmm. uh, even getting around different types of people. Right, yeah. I'm always now trying to get around different types of people who have differing opinions and values than I do to learn and grow because I've I've learned that. Right, if you're only around people that are just like you, then no one's really learning. You know, yeah. um, and just it's an echo chamber. Yeah, echo chamber. Exactly. You're just hearing the same thing over and over again, yeah. which is a huge problem in society today. Yeah. I mean, Twitter has single-handedly created a generation of echo chambers because yeah. no matter what you believe, you can create an environment where everybody believes the same exact thing, exactly. which is not real life. No, it's not. And it's not. And social media is a whole different beast. Like we didn't have social media growing up. Yeah. Well, yeah. But you had MySpace and stuff in like college, didn't you? And Friendster. Uh, yeah, we had. I remember my split, my space. We actually had this thing, Black Planet. <laughs> <laughs> I was never on that. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> Black Planet. Black Planet. Yeah. I remember I remember hearing about that. Yeah. Interesting. It was, was it like social media for black folks? Yeah, like a social media kind of dating type thing. Ah, you know, we, okay. what I mean really we use every like MySpace and and um Black Planet. It was all just to have your profile and try and impress the the the, the ladies connect. Yeah. You know, that was really what, what that was about. Um, but it was nothing like, you know, the, the Facebook and the Instagrams and the, the Snapchats um, that we have now. Facebook came out. I remember when Facebook first came out, it was only on college camp. We could see everybody that was, you know, at MTSU. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah. You know, we had I'm from the era of, of, of pagers, you know, beepers, sidekicks. I didn't even that's what we had in payphone. Somebody hits you on the, the, the pager and you got to find you got to get your quarter of 50 cent. Yeah, for the payphone to call them back. Like, oh man, that, see, that's... I, <laughs> see, the only people that had pagers when I came around were the drug dealers, uh, because like nobody had. We already had texting and stuff, yeah. but like a pager wasn't registered, like yeah. a cell phone was, and then track phones and drug yeah. dealers rejoiced. But man, yeah. so is... we yeah, coming up. I mean, what what was that? Ninety seven, like ninety seven, ninety eight to two thousand two thousand one. Like nobody had cell phones really back then. They started because I got my first cell phone when I was about to come up to college. And was it a cricket? Oh, was, was it, it the twenty nine ninety nine unlimited talk? <laughs> I had one of those. Yeah, I had one of those too. I had Nokia. That may have been cricket initially. Yeah. But yeah, man. So I got that just because I was coming up to college and needed to stay in touch. Yeah. But we all had like pagers and beepers, you know. Yeah. And the payphone. Yeah. And the payphone. Isn't it crazy to think about that 20 years ago? How much the world has changed since then? It's been a miraculous change, man. It's, it's crazy. Like, right now we have a mi- uh, microphones and uh, and a laptop. Like, 20 <laughs> years ago, we would have to have been in a, like, in a radio station. Oh, yeah. And this had to go live. Oh, yeah. In order for us to be able to do Unbelievable. this. Unbelievable. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, think so think about, like, when you think about young men today, mm-hmm. again, as a husband, as a father, as a leader in the community, as a mentor, you mentor a lot. You know, what are some of the struggles you're seeing with young men right now? So I saw it start when I was coming up. I remember having, um, and thank, you know, thankfully, um, my mom was a police dispatcher uh, for over 30 years. My uncle was a lieutenant. My so you had some disciplinarians in the house. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, and then my dad was a fire biological dad was a firefighter, and my uncle, his brother was a firefighter as well, and so had a lot of law enforcement, you know, related um, family members, and uh, I heard about everything that was going on. Yeah, especially right. in Memphis. Yeah, especially in Memphis. So I was had a more grounded foundation, right, yeah. so to speak. But where I'm going with this is I uh, remember just having uh, homeboys. You know, young ladies that their parents really didn't care what they did. Parents, you know, smoking weed, getting drunk with them. And this is like junior high and high school. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And it it was a few cats that and young ladies that had um, children in junior high and high school. Yep. Right. And so um, I mentor a lot of young and where I'm going with this, I I mentor um, over the years. It's a lot of young people. And what I see now is we have a an entire generation almost that's coming up where, in a sense, uh, children raising 
children, mm-hmm. so to speak, especially from a, a mindset standpoint. What I mean by that is generally or I'll say youth. Right. So when we're when we're young, we typically don't have many worries or, or stress. We just kind of live life by the seat of our pants. Right. Yeah. Carefree. We do what we want, how we want, when we want. And it's been some young guys that I've mentored multiple over the years. And I mean, they're cursing teachers out. Hmm. Right. And I mean, every word in the book, they're doing whatever. And the parents at home don't don't care. Like, yeah. it's, it's cool. Yeah. And so if you've got a situation where I'm doing things that could be detrimental to my future. Right. And to my well-being and the person that I respect, value, look up to the most, you know, condones this. Right. And, and, and that's that's my world. That that's what I know. And, and that's my, I don't know if you, the word I'm looking for, it's not necessarily integrity, but it's the benchmark. That's your, yeah, well, and that's your, that's your moral compass. Yes, that's it. That's what I'm looking for. So your moral compass, if that is the moral compass, then how can, not, it, it's possible, but it becomes very difficult to compete with that if that's the moral compass. Yeah, you're walking in the wrong direction. Your compass is showing you north, but actually you're walking west. Yeah, yeah and so... That's what I see with a lot of the, the the generation or the issues with the the current generation that we we have. You man, growing up and you hear about it, we had it to some extent. But if your neighbors or your friends' parents, you know what I'm saying, like if they saw you out of line, out of place, doing things that you shouldn't have been doing, they would get onto you. And in some cases, they go to your parents. Yeah, they go to your parents, and then in some, they even had the authority to discipline you. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. so there's there's and, and, and again, going back to the lower to lower middle class, because I think that's a, an entire different conversation is when you move to, you know, different classes and the classism and the mm-hmm. way that things are done. Yep. Because now you don't put your hands on Anybody. anybody's child, you even your own in some cases being out, you know, it, it's, it's so different. But it was that accountability coming up when we were younger that you generally don't see anymore. Right. It, it, the tables have completely turned. Um, and so I, I think there are there are a lot of things that have changed a lot. And social media, again, has, has lent to some of that as well. And just so much that we have access to. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't even I'm just kind of I feel like I'm rambling now. Um, but it's just been such a shift and things are so different. And I often think like. Man, those were the, you hear your parents and grandparents, you know, talking about how those the were the good old days. Yeah, yeah, the nostalgia, like in getting back to that. Well, and, but at the same time, I'll, you know, I agree with you in a lot of ways. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, so when you're talking about, so you're what, six years older than I am. So when, when you were in high school, I was like finishing off elementary school. And I remember this, you know, my dad taking me to school in the morning, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to Bruce Elementary. Yeah. Okay. On the way to Bruce Elementary is Central High, mm-hmm. okay, the high school. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And countless girls carrying their kids to school. Yeah. You know, there is that level of good old days, but then there's also that level of well, they weren't that good old yeah. days either because that was ex- like I don't see girls carrying their kids to school as much today. Maybe I'm not in the right neighborhoods. Maybe I'm not going to the right schools. Driving by there, it's part of it. Yeah. But man, it was a they had a daycare in the school. Yeah. That was intense. And I yeah, I guess that's it too. That that's a, an excellent point. I think with where we are here, yeah. like 
it's a lot different than yeah, it's suburban America. Yeah. So I had I got a homeboy. He he recently got married back in the Elm a couple of years ago. But I remember talking with him over the past decade. And he was like, man, like at our age, which at the time, you know, like late twenties, early thirties, it's like it's hard to even find, you know. Uh, a girl who doesn't have two or three kids already. Yeah. You know, um, but I think a lot of it is just being young and not really knowing. But like you said, as soon as you hit junior high to high school, then it it, it wasn't much different. And I, I would have loved to see uh, or just I won't say love. I'm interested to see how it would have been had we had social media you know, back in, you know, junior high and high school to the extent that the scary part is we won't know that we'll find out in about 15 years Mm. because the kids who are in middle school now who've got social media will be 30 at that point or, or late twenties, you know? So that's the scary part. And to the point of mental health, my wife just did a, uh, she recently did a talk presentation to a group of young ladies and I don't know about you, but I didn't know. And I don't know if this is going back to the classism thing, Mm -hmm. but the mental health piece. Mm -hmm. I don't ever recall anyone growing up like in Memphis, like committing suicide. Now, it was a bunch of people getting killed. Um, Let me think. I don't think anybody. Not that. Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. Again, I'm a little younger than you. Um, Since I've graduated high school. I think we had one girl do it. I think. I'm not 100% sure, but that's a good point. I've heard about suicide a lot more, especially amongst men. Yeah, and it's been among even junior high and yeah. high school, like men and women. Yeah. Um, and then the which there were, were drugs, and I think drugs have gotten a little bit harder, more on a last, uh, a wider scale and more accessibility in mm-hmm. a sense now, just with, you know, social media, et cetera. But that's been a, a very interesting trend and thing I'm, I'm starting to see uh, that a lot of younger people are talking about like growing up depression. What's depression? <laughs> you know, yeah, like, it's like, it's like your feelings. You're just going through your feelings. Right. Like, well, I think the, and my wife and I have talked about this a lot yeah. over time. And I've talked about it with my parents and other people. It's like, this constant chasing of happiness yes. is so unreasonable. Yes. Happiness is a feeling. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've used this quote on this podcast before. Um, there's a there's a, a priest in Atlanta. His name is Father Barnabas Powell. And he's somebody I, I regularly like listen to his podcast mm. and, and uh, things like that. He's a Greek Orthodox priest. Mm. And um, he said um, a man was confessing to him that he was going to leave his wife and kids, a parishioner of his, somebody mm-hmm. in his church. Wow. And apparently Father Barnabas was like, uh, don't do that. That's a bad idea. <laughs> and apparently the man responded with, well, Father, don't I deserve to be happy? Mm. And apparently Father yeah. Barnabas's response was, no, you deserve to be good. Happiness is a byproduct of being good. And it's not a constant byproduct. Mm. It's about having character and integrity. Because he was going to leave his wife for his, this mistress. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, what are you like? You're going to be unhappy with this chick after you leave your wife and kids as well because crap's going to happen there. So yeah. like this constant chasing of yeah. happiness is leaving us in this state of we're constantly comparing. We're constantly sad. We're constantly being exposed to everyone's yeah. highlight reel. And like, why am I not happy? Yeah. Well, because it's impossible to constantly be happy. Mm-hmm. You should embrace being sad and unhappy <laughs> because it means you feel something. Yeah. Yeah. It means you know what it means to be happy. If you know what it means to be sad, you also know what it means to be happy. Mm-hmm. Now that's also with the caveat. There is chemical imbalances 
and clinical depression. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Oh yeah. But just because you're sad doesn't necessarily mean you're depressed. Mm-hmm. That's doing a disservice to the people who genuinely have a yeah, genuinely have, clinical yeah. issue. Yeah, absolutely. So we're running up on time. And, and the one thing I always like to ask people um, at the end of a podcast is if there's one thing you could do. What were you going to say? Yeah. So what I was going to say is I think part of that, um, I, I don't I don't like the word happiness as much anymore, because like you said, it is more based on just this feeling. But what I what I've learned is that we are to be in pursuit of contentment. Right. So so being content. And I think that comes in finding your purpose. I think a lot of people are depressed, you know, quote unquote. And some again, there are a lot of people that that actually have that diagnosis, the chemical imbalance. But I think uh, a lot of people's discontentment um, and not being at ease with life, sad comes from the comparison. deal. And again, going Mm -hmm. to the social media. Because if you're focused on being the best you that you can be and you feel that you're in purpose and each of us were created for a specific purpose, I feel right. Mm-hmm. And so the sooner that we can find while we were placed on this earth and we pursue that wholeheartedly to fulfill that purpose, we find contentment in that. Um, and so often we're looking at other people and we're trying to be what we think that we want to be because we admire this quality or the traits in this other person. And so you're always looking around and never focus inward, but all the focus is outward about, you know, it as relates to what other people are doing. And you find yourself trying to be a copycat, right? Mm-hmm. You'll never be as good as them. And no one else will be as good as you. You mentioned good. Yeah. So no one else can be um, perfect as, as you are in a sense, right? We all have our own perfections that we should should pursue, right? Being the best you that you can be. And I feel like that is where the true contentment and even happiness and fulfillment more than anything will come from. And even that might evolve. Yeah, exactly. Even, even that idea. Exactly. Might. No, that's, that's, that's powerful. Um, we're running up on time. So I want to, I want to make sure we ask this last question. Um, so if you could go back to 18 year old you, Hmm. So wide-eyed, bushy-tailed little Eric with the cha- with the gold chains, with the beeper, <laughs> with the Nokia on his hip that he's showing. So the shirt's over the Nokia <laughs> yeah. with the zip-tied uh, hubcap spinners. Um, and there's one thing you could go back to, to to 18-year-old you, knowing all that you know and knowing all that you know about yourself. What, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Man, that's a, uh, that's a deep question. The advice that I would give to my 18-year-old self would be to, I would genuinely say, to be the best me that I could be. Mm -hmm. Um, Embrace your uniqueness. um, Pursue your purpose with everything in you. You know, of course, definitely keep keep God first and try to be a... um, a student of of yourself and in your identity and not be focused on um, what people think. Right. Um, because I've realized that the people that tend to be the most uh, fulfilled, the most successful early on there, they deal with a lot of rejection. Right. They're called weird. They're called mm. different. They're yep. called crazy. But those that stay true to themselves 
they end up standing out and flourishing. Being unique, being creative. Unique. Yeah. yeah, unique, creative, right? Yeah. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And one of the things I think about, and I often say, we all have different fingerprints, right? Mm-hmm. No one in the world has the exact same fingerprint that we have, right? Our hair, hair molecule, like no one has hair follicles, that no one has the exact same thing. And so we were each created very uniquely, right? We were uniquely created and designed. And the sooner that we can find and embrace that, I feel like that's where that fulfillment, happiness, you know, et cetera, will come from. And early on, you know, my early 20s, I said I lost a lot of life trying to figure out um, who I was and more so looking to other people trying to get ideas of who I am. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no way that you're going to derive or get who you are supposed to be based on other people. Yeah. Right. And so I think I, that is definitely one of the things that I would say um, that would be the biggest piece of advice that I would give myself. The sonar that you can hone in and focus on your unique abilities um, and what God has called and created you to be, that's where you're going to find fulfillment and ultimately your purpose. I love it. Well, Eric, thank you. Yeah, no I'm doubt. glad we got Thank to yeah. do this. This was fun. <laughs> Finally got together. Absolutely, brother. Absolutely. Um, obviously, I'll have like people can follow you on social media, et cetera. I'll have a little bio. But for everybody listening, you know, as always, you've got questions, concerns, uh, constructive criticism, keyword constructive. Don't just complain. Offer a solution. Millennial Manhood, CIP at gmail.com. And uh, we'll talk to you guys.